what a delight it is to be here this evening and also what a delight it is to be in this series on the miracles of Jesus. We've been going through this series so far this summer and it's been wonderful to see various aspects of the power and the ministry of Jesus through these miracles. One of the things you learn as you scour scripture and look at the miracles of Jesus in the Old Testament, but also specifically in the Gospels, is that there is no guarantee, even with the miracles of Jesus, of people believing on Jesus Christ as the Son of God. There's no guarantee. In fact, you find that most often, the post-miracle response of people is, instead of belief in Christ, is hardness of heart toward him, an inability to place confidence in him. People just don't want to believe in spite of the miracles. And in our postmodern times, we find that people have just become too sophisticated to actually believe that the miracles of Jesus happened or that they happen anymore, or that they are able to lead them into faith in Christ. People have just become too sophisticated. For example, you have the former professor of religions at Stanford University and a liberal theologian himself, Van A. Harvey. Van A. Harvey says that people don't believe in miracles anymore because such thinking violates, and I quote, what we now call the common sense view of the world, what we call the common sense view of the world, end quote. If you really think about that, if a person really has common sense, the first thing that common sense tells you about miracles is that miracles have nothing to do with common sense. <laughs> and so this common sense view, really, that Van Harvey talks about is a misnomer for hardness of heart, hardness of heart. What do you think about the miracles of Jesus, whether it's in the Gospels or in our own times? And how have you allowed them to affect your disposition towards the Lord Jesus Christ? What effect have the miracles of Jesus had on your own heart? As we look at the Gospel of Mark this evening, we find that Mark writes to first and second century Gentile Christians who lived in Rome and he writes to show that Jesus is the son of God who came as the son of man to serve and not to be served. That's the key verse of Mark. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, that the son of man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus served people, but he served them out of compassion for them so that their hardness toward him might be melted and that they might ultimately believe on him. And we find that every time that Jesus was moved with compassion, it resulted in him performing miracles to help people. And in Mark, actually, four times we find, four times Jesus is moved with compassion. And each time he is moved with compassion, it results in him performing a miracle. This particular text that we're looking at tonight, Mark chapter 6 and Verses 30 to 56, if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Mark 6, 30 to 56. This text is unique in that it's the only time recorded when Jesus is moved with compassion because he sees people as sheep not having a shepherd. Matthew also records this 
that Jesus is moved with compassion because he sees people as sheep not having a shepherd. But when Matthew records it, the follow-up is that Jesus asks his disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the, into the harvest. Mark alone records that Jesus performs miracles because of the compassion that he has for his sheep. You know, sometimes you and I, we become too busy in life to see the needs of other people and have compassion and help them. Too busy. Sometimes you and I become self-centered, so self-centered that we cannot see the needs of other people and move with compassion to help them. Neither was the case with the Lord Jesus Christ as we shall see in this text out of Mark 6. Please follow along with me as we look at verse 30 onwards. We find that Jesus and his disciples had a very packed itinerant ministry. The 12 apostles, in fact, had just returned after being sent out on a trip two by two. And uh, they had been sent out to heal people, to cast demons out, and to preach repentance. And at the end of these days, they come to Jesus and they give their ministry report to Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying to them, well, now you need a retreat. You need some rest because they were so busy in the ministry that they didn't have time even to eat their food, it says. And so we're told that Jesus and the 12 set out on a retreat. They go on their retreat, they get into a boat, and they ride to what is supposedly a secluded place where they will get some rest from all the buzz of people that had been uh, clamoring them. But as they leave, over there is somebody and that somebody spots them leaving. He recognizes who they are. And somehow he finds out where they're going. The word gets out. And as the word gets out, now thousands upon thousands of people hear that Jesus and his disciples are going somewhere. And they get ahead of them by foot to the location that they're going to on retreat. Ahead of Jesus and his disciples. This shows how desperate these people were for Jesus, I wonder if we would have followed Jesus like this and gone ahead of him to meet him. You know, as I think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the more I get to know him, I find personally, I don't know about you, but I find that I can't get enough of him. Now, the world may be repulsed by him, Jesus, but I see in Jesus a majestic presence with power, and yet at the same time, I see in Jesus such a magnetic personality with compassion, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they saw that in him, and they needed him. They were desperate for him. But also this massive following that Jesus has here is because he was very famous, simply put. Everybody knew who Jesus was because of the miracles that we've been hearing about, and also because of the way he preached with authority. They knew that he was a, a very well-known man, and his fame began to spread. And you know, the fame of Jesus has been spreading since then and has continued into our own times. That's why we're here tonight, because of Jesus. His name has spread, and his fame has spread. So the disciples arrive to this place of retreat, and no sooner than the boat touches the shores of this place, do thousands line up, thousands of them line up to meet them. 
And Jesus gets out of the boat and he shouts at them, you pesky people, go home. I'm on vacation with my disciples. Stop annoying me. If that's what your Bible says, you're reading the RSV. It's the reversed selfish version. But sometimes that's what our hearts say, don't they? We say, I'm resting, go away, stop bothering me, I don't have time. Wasn't the case with Jesus. He sees the large crowds. And the Bible says in verse 34 of chapter 6, he was moved with compassion for them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. He was moved. That's the key word. He was moved with compassion because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. Jesus has compassion in the midst of a busy itinerant ministry. And that too, remember, he's on a retreat. He sees people and he has compassion. And in the Gospels, the word compassion is a very important word, and we must know for this context's sake what it means. Is compassion just a feeling of empathy and sympathy? Not merely so. Biblical compassion, or the biblical sense of compassion, is the feeling of pity that one has for another, sure, but it is the feeling of pity that moves one to the depths of their soul to take action in response to the helplessness or to the, in response to the need of a person who cannot help himself. That's compassion, not mere feelings. Jesus is here compelled to take action for these people. So then the question we're asking of this text as we look at it tonight is how does Christ the shepherd care for his sheep when he is moved with compassion for us? How does Christ the shepherd care for his sheep when he is moved with compassion for us? That's the question. I want us to notice from this text seven acts. This is not going to be a three-point sermon, by the way. It's going to be a seven-point sermon. Seven acts that reveal the compassion of the shepherd. First of all, the shepherd teaches his sheep. The shepherd teaches his sheep. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And the first thing he does, the Bible says in verse 34, is he began to teach them many things. Began to teach them many things. Why? You know why? Because the first thing that sheep need is instruction that causes them not to go astray. You know, sheep are dumb creatures. And the Bible says that all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. So Jesus here in response gives them instruction the whole day. And notice with me that preaching and teaching occupied the most time and was the great shepherd's greatest and first priority. It was his first priority, teaching and preaching. And we should expect no less from our shepherds. On October 5th, 1544, Martin Luther preached at the dedication of the Castle Church in Torgau, Germany. And he said this, I quote, It is the intention of this building that nothing else shall happen inside except that our dear Lord shall speak to us through his word, and we in turn shall speak to him through prayer and praise. We can spare everything else except the word, end quote. We can spare everything else except the word, and it's no different for us today. We can spare all the rest, 
but prayer and the preaching of the word must remain the priority. They must. And I find in today's consumeristic church culture, people go to church for so many different reasons, none of which are wrong inherently, but please hear me carefully on this. If you are not coming to church to be fed by the pure word of God, you are going to be disappointed with Jesus because that was his first priority, teaching his sheep his ways through his word. And I do thank God for the priority that is given to the word of God here at the Moody Church. And may it ever be so till the shepherd returns to gather his sheep in his arms. Secondly, the second act of compassion is that the shepherd makes his sheep recline. The shepherd makes his sheep recline. Now remember, this has been an entire day of teaching, an entire day. He didn't, uh, he didn't really let them get away after the, the 40 minute or 45 minute mark. He just kept going. And uh, now as the day draws to a close, his disciples come to him and they say to him, this, is, this place is desolate, he says. And it is all, they say, it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and into the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? They raise expense issues. Lord, this is an awfully large retreat. And you really want us to take 200 denarii out of the money bag and spend it? 200 denarii, that's close to, somewhere close to uh, between 10 to 12,000 US dollars. And uh, by going by that day's standards, that's an awfully large amount of money to be spending on food. And so expense issues. But then they find that they have about five loaves, not about, exactly five loaves and, of bread and two fish. And then follows the second act of compassion from the Lord. The shepherd makes his sheep recline in, on the grass in groups of 50s and 100s. But what I want you to notice and what I want you to see there is the phrase green grass. Do you see that? Green grass. Now, whether, whether this, this is a desolate place with already existing greenery or whether this is a desert place where Jesus miraculously caused greenery to grow, scholars are divided on it, whatever the case may be, the point is here that the shepherd ensures that his sheep find green pasture in which to rest. He finds them green pasture. Remember that Jesus and his disciples are already on a retreat to rest themselves. But the shepherd knows that these sheep are restless and he knows that the only thing that the restless sheep need is not just the word that he preached to them the whole day, but they need the rest that only he can give them in his presence. Only the presence of Jesus affords these sheep rest that they need. And with all that's going on today in the world, and with all that's going on in your life personally, do you need rest for your weary soul? I know I do. And to you and I, the Lord says, come and recline in 
my green grass that is in the pasture of his presence that is available to us today and it's available to us every day wherever life may take us. And then we find the third act of compassion. The shepherd provides food for his sheep. Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish from his disciples, which they found. And the Bible says, looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and he broke the loaves and he kept giving them to his disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. Do you notice that phrase, he kept giving them to his disciples? He kept giving them. The more he broke the bread and divided up the fish, supernaturally, more of it kept forming on the spot as he went. My friend, I want you to know that in Christ is an inexhaustible supply for all the needs and all the desires of all who will trust him. In Christ, there is an inexhaustible supply for all of your needs. Because that day we find everyone ate. And it says that they were filled, they were satisfied. And they weren't merely satisfied because they weren't eating junk, they were nourished. And it says that 12 baskets remained. Some scholars say one for each disciple. 12 baskets remain. But when you look at these numbers, 5,000 men, that's not counting the women, not counting the, the children, which means that the number probably doubled if you count them. You look at these numbers and it staggers the mind that Jesus just produced out of nothing, ex nihilo, he produced and gave these people to eat. I wonder what these people felt, first of all, being fed by Jesus spiritually, and then being fed by him physically. What did they feel? What would you feel? Now, are you beginning to see the compassion of the shepherd as it unfolds here? And are you connecting it to your own life situation? This retreat that they're on comes to an end, but the compassion of Christ, we find, continues. Immediately after the feeding, the Lord asks his disciples to go and get into their boat and go to the other side, to Bethsaida. And he himself remains, he stays back and he sends the large crowds away. And then comes this fourth act, of compassion. The shepherd prays. The shepherd prays. The Lord Jesus goes into a mountain alone, it says, and he prays. I wonder who he was praying for. I'd like to know. The text doesn't tell us, but it wouldn't be wrong for us to imagine that the shepherd was actually praying for his sheep in the context that it's set in. At any rate, here is the Son of God. The power uh, that, he, that he had to feed these 5,000 or more people with five loaves and two fish. Here he is, the one who just performed this great miracle, and he has to get alone with his father to pray? Yes, he does. You say, how is this an act of compassion at all? Well, actually, this is the central act of compassion. This is the one that actually holds them all together and fuels the other acts of compassion that we see on either side of it. Now, in this way, it is the central act of compassion, or it is an act of compassion. You see, the Lord Jesus had a desire, a heart, to be with God. In other words, he had a passion for God. It is only because of his passion for God that he could have compassion for people. 
And you and I, we will never have true compassion for people unless it comes out of the overflow of our passion for God. You can never have true compassion for people unless it comes out of the overflow of your passion and my passion for God. This was the secret of Jesus' compassion for people. His time spent with God alone in prayer. And his time of prayer ends, and he presumably comes down the mountain, or maybe he's still on the mountain. He's still on land at any rate. And we're told that he sees the disciples in their boat, rowing, being tossed to and fro in the middle of the sea. Now, I find that interesting. If he was in the middle of the, which is actually the Lake Gennesaret, that means he's about three or four miles in. They are three or four miles in. Jesus is on land, they're three or four miles in, and Jesus actually can see them. Tells me he had pretty good eyesight. He didn't need LASIK, he didn't need glasses, but he could see them. And he sees them sweating it out in rowing their boat because it says that the wind was against them or contrary to them. The time is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which they call in that culture the fourth watch of the night. It is dark, and in the dark, with the winds and the waves roaring, Christ begins to walk on the water, walks on the sea, walks on the lake, intending to actually overtake them, it says. Maybe he wanted to show them that he didn't need the boat. He didn't need the oars to transport himself across this lake that, like they did. He's so much in control of the wind and the water, in perfect control of it, even when these elements seem out of control, that he can actually walk on the water. Walk on the water, yes. Not walk beside the water on the shore. Not walk with a paddleboard on the water, no. He is actually walking with his very feet touching the water on the water, on top of the very water. That which he created in the beginning is now under his feet and is subservient to him. That's his power, matchless. Now the disciples, they see this. And they don't know what to make of a man walking on water. And I bet you and I wouldn't know what to make if we saw a man walking on water either. They think it's a ghost. And they shriek out with fear. They're afraid. And this brings the shepherd's next act of compassion. In the dark of the night, when the wind is blowing and when fear is taunting, the shepherd encourages his sheep and sets them at ease. Now, instead of overtaking them, which he could have easily done, by the way, he's already walking, he may as well have run on the water, he could have overtaken them. But Jesus instead sees that these sheep are troubled, and the Bible says, and immediately he spoke with them. Immediately. Do you know that Mark likes that word immediately? He uses it an awful lot. But in, in this context, it's very special, because the shepherd senses that the sheep are troubled in heart, and he speaks to them immediately, he doesn't waste a moment. And the shepherd is ever ready to speak to us and with us in our trouble. Did you know that? You can go to Jesus anytime and he's ready to speak with you. He says here to these sheep, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. What words? Wonderful words to hear from Jesus himself. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage. Christ encourages them in heart. Be encouraged tonight. 
If you are in the dark of your soul, when everything is dark externally and they are troubled internally, Christ comes to them and encourages them. And you know, in the darkness of your life and my life, when the wind of life is set against us, we cannot see ahead. We ought to learn to look for Jesus in those scenarios instead of looking to alternatives. You know, you don't have to look to psychotherapy to ease your situation. You don't have to look to yoga and transcendental meditation. You don't have to look to drugs or to alcohol to dispel the winds and the waves in your life. You don't have to look to sexual immorality to fill your heart up. You don't have to. Because just as Jesus showed up on the waters of Gennesaret, this shepherd I know him still shows up in the very vicinity of your trouble and mine. Such was the experience of a man named Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson lived in the late 1800s, and this Francis Thompson, who was an Englishman, had a very brilliant mind. He moved from the countryside of England and uh, moved to the city of London in order to become a doctor and study medicine. Unfortunately, when he went to London, Francis Thompson became an opium addict, and uh, he entered the dark night of his soul becoming a homeless man because he would sell everything he had in order to buy opium and sustain his addiction. But even in his addiction, he still retained the brilliance of his mind somehow, and he would write regularly to the London newspaper there, sending in his poetry to be published. And one particular editor, upon receiving a piece of poetry from Thompson, remarked, one greater than Milton is among us, but we have no return address because he was homeless. And in his homelessness, Thompson would sleep on a bridge across the Thames River in London. And from that bridge across the Thames, he would go to the Charing Cross Hospital in London to be treated for his drug addiction. And then he would come back out of the hospital, go back to the bridge, slipping back into his addiction, and go back and forth between the bridge and the hospital. And through this experience, he relates, he writes in a poem of his and describes how Christ met him in the dark storm of his life. Allow me to narrate that for you. He says, describing his meeting of Christ, he says, O world invisible, we view thee. O world unknowable, we know thee. O world intangible, we touch thee. Inapprehensible, we clutch thee. Does the fish soar to find the ocean, the eagle plunge to find the air, that we ask of the stars in motion if they have rumor of thee there? Not where the wheeling systems darken or our benumbed conceiving soar, the drift of pinions would we hearken beats at our own clay-shuttered doors. The angels keep their ancient places, turn but a stone and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your estranged faces that miss the many-splendored thing. But when so sad, thou canst not sadder, cry, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder, pitched twixt heaven and Charing Cross. Yea, in the night, my soul, my daughter, cry, clinging heaven by the hems, and lo, Christ walking on the water, not of Gennesaret, but Thames. He shows up, the shepherd came literally walking on Gennesaret's waters to meet his disciples. Figuratively, he shows up on the waters of the Thames to meet Francis Thompson, and this shepherd still comes walking over the chaos of your life, as troubling as it may be, he comes to encourage you. The question I have for you is this, and for myself. 
when he comes, will you recognize him, first of all? And then, will you receive his encouragement and let him into your life by obeying the voice of Jesus when he speaks into your situation, when he speaks through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and through his people? Will you let him in as he speaks to you? Letting Jesus in is a must in life if your life is to be stilled. Because notice with me, sixthly, and we're going right along here, number six, the shepherd leads his sheep beside still waters. As soon as Jesus gets into the boat, the wind ceases and the disciples are dumbfounded. Literally, what it says is they are exceedingly amazed in themselves beyond measure with wonder. What a description of what it means to be shocked or surprised. He steps into the boat and all that was tempestuous around them, soon as he steps in, in a second, turns to a crystal top and uh, you probably would be tempted to go ice skating on it. So clear was it and so placid. The sheep are now in still waters. Notice that it is the presence of Jesus in this life situation that brings stillness to the chaos. Not the sailing acumen of these fishermen, not the vessel that they had, but the presence of Jesus brings stillness to this life situation. Is this shepherd in your life situation? Is he there to still your storm? And is he there for you to be encouraged by and for you to trust? Now we find then that this account ends just as it began. It began with Jesus coming ashore and being met by many different people and we find the same kind of ending here that many people, as soon as Jesus comes ashore, come to meet him, and they want themselves, they want their friends, they want their family, all to be healed. And so then we find the seventh act, and the last act of compassion in this account of Jesus. The shepherd restores his sheep to wholeness. The shepherd restores his sheep to wholeness. People from villages, from cities, and the countryside throng the streets of Gennesaret, just to touch the hem of his garment, and Jesus seems to permit it. And the Bible says, as many as touched it were made whole. The last verse of this account, verse 56. As many as touched it were made whole or well. Now he could have said, don't touch my clothes, stay back. Don't want you to touch me. I'm the son of God. But we see the compassion of the shepherd in desiring that these sick folk, these diseased folk, be healed and restored to health and to wholeness. He wants them to be whole. And you know, there are many wellness and wholeness movements out there today. There's, uh, for example, a, a certain food retailer that uh, says buying and eating food items from that particular store will make you whole. There are certain Eastern mystical movements, Eastern mystical movements and practices that have come into the West and taken the West by storm with a promise, they say, of holistic wellness. May I please say to you, categorically, that without Jesus, there is no wholeness in your life or mine. There will only be a hole in your life without Jesus. And so, these seven acts of compassion that reveal the compassion of the shepherd. 
What response then does the shepherd desire to see in his sheep as a result of his compassion for them? What is the response that they are to have? Well, commenting on the utter disbelief of the disciples at Jesus being able to calm the sea, we missed verse 52 as we were going through it, but I kept it for now. Commenting on their utter disbelief, the Bible says in verse 52, their hearts were hardened. Why? Because they had not taken into account the miracle of the loaves and the fish being divided that they just saw Jesus performing. Hearts hardened with unbelief. After this lavish display of compassion, is this the response that Jesus desired to see in them? Now, I want us to go back to the start of this account, just very quickly as we end. We are told at the start of this account that Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he's moved with, with compassion. His heart is stirred to move his hands on behalf of them as their shepherd, and he does. In contrast, now at the end, what we find is that uh, some of these sheep, they see the shepherd, they experience his compassion, but their heart towards him remains unmoved. It remains hardened. You see, compassion moves to take action, but a heart that is hard does not respond to compassion by moving in faith. It cannot. By implication, therefore, one main response that the Lord desires to see in his sheep as a result of his compassion for them is confidence in him. Confidence in him. The compassion of the shepherd for us should give us complete confidence in him. Now, I want to better frame and illustrate this response, and so I'm going to take the help of an Old Testament hero. I want us to imagine here King David of Israel, who, by the way, before he became a king, was a shepherd. I want us to imagine that he is part of this motley band of disciples. Imagine that David is with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is with Peter, James, and John, and the rest on this retreat. David is with them, and he sees the huge crowds. He, he, he experiences Jesus' compassion for them, how Jesus teaches them all day, how Jesus makes them recline on the green grass, how the Lord provides food to overflowing then David sees over there, Jesus goes into the mountain up to pray. He sees, David sees Jesus come down the mountain, sees him stand on the land, sees him walk on the water to go and encourage his sheep, his disciples. And then Jesus, uh, David sees Jesus still the waters. And when Jesus comes ashore, David sees that he heals many people by restoring them to wholeness. He sees all of this. If David saw all of this, I imagine that David would fall on his knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. He would say, I know who you are. I know who you are. You are the one that I wrote about in my poem about the shepherd. And then David would break out into song. And I want us to all not break out into song, but I would like us to all repeat or say what is on the screen here. This is what David would say. He would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think David would say that. Complete confidence in the shepherd. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ at the Moody Church, in these times when there is no senior pastor, when there is no senior shepherd, when there's no regular voice in the pulpit, the Lord would remind all of us that he is our shepherd. The Bible says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And so I know that the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, the members of the Moody Church, the future members of the Moody Church, those who attend, I know that we are placing our confidence in Jesus to continue to lead and provide for this flock. Corporately, but personally, what's going on in your life right now that you need to have confidence or faith in God for? I ask you, in, your, in his compassion, has he not given you and has he not taken care of your needs and desires if you're one of his sheep i believe he has then why not trust him and place your confidence in him as your shepherd to do it for you once again remember his past provisions and don't be hardened in heart but believe and have confidence in him now besides confidence in him there's another response that the lord desires for us to have in view of his great compassion. And that is that we ourselves have compassion for people like he does. Notice in verse 37, if you will, please. There the Bible says, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. This is very important. You, literally it says, you yourselves give them something to eat. The great shepherd is training these future under shepherds to feed his sheep in his authority. You yourselves give them something to eat. If we are at a place in our relationship with Jesus that we can trust him to use us to feed people, if we are at such a place, if we were at such a place, then we ourselves would give the world something to eat. We wouldn't have to turn to the so-called professionals of our day. We wouldn't have to turn to the so-called, the quote-unquote, cultural experts to guide us. If we walked so close with the great shepherd that our own limitations weren't a hindrance anymore, then with the, the 10 or 12 under shepherds here that we have, we would shake this city for the glory of God. And I believe more than 5,000 people that were there at the feeding of Jesus, more than 5,000 people would come cramming in the doors of this church, eager to be fed with the spiritual food that only Jesus can supply and multiply. When I look at history, I look at D.L. Moody, I look at R.A. Torrey, and I've seen this happen in the history of this church. And I believe, I for one believe that it can happen again in the grace of God. And you know, the compassion of our shepherd is ultimately, I have to mention this, I would be remiss if I didn't. The compassion of the, our shepherd is ultimately demonstrated when Jesus goes to the cross to lay down his life for the sheep. And on the cross, Jesus poured out his blood and gave up his life as a sacrifice for sin on behalf of all those who would believe in him, being the shepherd and the lamb at the same time. And you know, as it relates to miracles, 
Because my shepherd died on the cross for my sins, I don't have to care what the world says about miracles. They can call belief in miracles a lack of common sense, as Vanny Harvey did, we saw at the beginning. They can call belief in miracles cartoons, for all I care. It doesn't matter to me. You know why? Hear me very carefully. Because the greatest miracle this shepherd did in my life is that, first of all, he rescued me from sin, and he rescued me from the wrath of God, and secondly, he raised me up from spiritual deadness and gave me spiritual life and eternal life. I, who was once dead spiritually, am now alive in Christ. And so are some of, many of you here. That's the greatest miracle, that we've been raised from death to life. And this leaves the door open for whatever other miracle the Lord chooses to do or not to do. And you may be here tonight and you may have never received the shepherd, Jesus, into your life. Maybe you do not know him as your savior and as your shepherd. Tonight would be the night that he gives you this shepherd for you to come to him and have your sins forgiven. Come just as you are and he will receive you as the shepherd and he will take you into his arms and he will mend your broken heart and give you a new start. Come to the shepherd. And maybe you are someone who has been a sheep and you need to rededicate your life to this shepherd. You have gone astray. Come and return to the shepherd of your soul and he will accept you as well. He will restore you to full fellowship and communion with him. Stop going astray. You're here tonight to hear the voice of not a man, but the voice of the shepherd who calls out to you tonight, calling you to come home to his arms. Come home. Whatever the case may be tonight, will you, whether you have never received this shepherd or whether you need to recommit your life to him, will you make a commitment to follow this shepherd? And I know we have our prayer partners here. I'm going to ask them to begin uh, lining up there to, to my left. And I want you to have this opportunity tonight, if you've never believed on Jesus before, to speak with someone and dedicate your life to Christ. May they lead you to Christ. Is this Jesus that I have preached tonight from the Gospel of Mark? Is this Jesus, is he your shepherd? Do you know him as your shepherd? Receive his compassion. Let your heart toward him be softened in full confidence toward him. And having done so, then in Jesus' name, go out and be a conduit of this compassion to the people of the world. And you and I will bring glory to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus came as the shepherd who laid down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I thank you for that. That alone is enough. But you... Oh, Lord Jesus, as the shepherd, you, you do so much more for us, your sheep, and we thank you. We give our lives to you. I ask tonight in Jesus' name, if there's someone here tonight who has never given their life to you, that they would do so. That Holy Spirit of God, you would help them. And I pray for those who have perhaps gone astray, who, have, who are here tonight or who will hear this sermon in the future. Bring them back home. We love you, our shepherd, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.